Hey everyone, and welcome to episode nine of the Offsite Podcast, where we chat all things construction and technology. My name's Carlos, and I spend most of my days talking to construction teams about how they deliver projects. And I'm Jason, and I build software that construction teams use to deliver their projects. Sorry about how excellently tanned I'm looking at the moment. It's kind of making you look, look a bit like a ghost <laughs> to my side at the moment. <laughs> Uh, I've, you've got the obviously the uh, studio lighting set up. So for those uh, not actually watching any video, Carlos looks like he's a, a professional podcast host okay, with lighting, very tanned, perfect. And I look like I've never left the basement the last uh, four years. That's just showing you the power dynamic. I think it's it's, it's that intro is just a complete flex from Carlos. <laughs> <laughs> how's your How's your week going, Carlos? Yeah, not too bad. Not too bad. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it it. There's a lot of um. There seems to be a lot of movement in the market here at the moment. So we obviously had the news recently of a few sort of schemes being canned. But oddly, at the same time, Rishi's saying to G7 that we're going to be doing an extra 35 billion worth of infrastructure over the next few years. So exciting as to where that's going to go. But it's a bit weird to cancel schemes and then promise to spend even more. Um, but hey, that's the government. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It just, yeah, just shuffling the deck kind of thing, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Right. So today we're going to be chatting about uh, a potential sort of shift in how we deliver infrastructure projects or major infrastructure projects. Um, and then later on, we're going to talk a little bit about a company called Keyflow, um, which is the latest sort of British startup in our space to secure Series A funding. So infrastructure project uh, contracts, I should say. Most sort of infrastructure contracts that obviously we discuss and are in the news, they're pretty mega. So we're talking billion plus pound contracts or dollar contracts. And this ultimately means we've got a relatively small sort of crowd of elite contractors who actually have the sort of capacity or capability to actually bid and win these contracts, which ultimately means it's kind of anti-competitive. We're, we're excluding a lot of the market from the ability to actually go for these things because of the sheer scale. And there's a bit of a movement at the moment um, led by some sort of smaller tier one contractors and tier twos where they want clients to think about breaking up these contracts. If we have a series of smaller contracts that make up these schemes, it opens up competition. It gives opportunities to sort of smaller, maybe more specialist or local firms to win work who have obviously the capacity to do so rather than what we always see is in Australia, an Italian contractor coming in, in the UK, American contractors. And I guess it's because that pool of contractors is, is it actually quite small. So quite an interesting angle. It opens up a lot of opportunities. Trying to think about, I guess, is it actually healthy um, for, the, for the industry as a whole? And I think the first thing that sprung to my mind and I think this is a bit of an old school view, is buying ability. So if you think from a procurement point of view, large contracts means you're buying things like materials at volume. So there's suddenly that economies of scale sort of argument that works. And I say it's an old school view because I haven't actually looked at the numbers to see that like the price of steel goes down by a significant percent if you're buying loads of it. It's probably relatively marginal. But I guess there's a reason we shop in supermarkets and not boutique shops, right? It's cheaper because you're, 
you're buying from large organizations. So that seems like a, a natural sort of potential barrier to these smaller companies competing from a price point of view. They're going to be naturally slightly more expensive. Um, but we actually discussed the other day about potentially clients taking ownership of purchasing to some extent. So Jason, we had the chat the other day and we were talking about the uh, low cement, uh, low carbon cement for concrete. Nearly got that wrong again. Um, why don't client organizations say, right, we're going to purchase all of this type of material because to help with our sort of carbon agenda, we'll take the risk on that price. That sort of model could work really well with these smaller sort of contracts where the client's going to pay for the materials anyway. Why can't they essentially sort of purchase, have the buying power or ability of a large organization, but actually let these sort of smaller companies um, be part of the process and aren't just a subcontractor to the traditional contractor. That was a lot of words. <laughs> um, do you think it's healthy? Do you think this sort of model would work? I don't know. I'm, I am on. I am on the fence. So, like, there, there's definitely there's definitely an argument to be made to to go away from the bigger projects. Like, there's there's competing trends, right? There's a trend over the last uh, let's say decade or probably more. Average, like the size of infrastructure projects, has gone up. As one of the as one of the leaders from a contractor I spoke to recently. Uh, said uh, when he was trying to remember how much the the value of a project was, he was like, "Ah, oh, everything's a billion these days, so it's probably a billion or two billion or something." Um, the projects are definitely getting bigger, and at the same time, there's like just a ton of research uh, about how inefficient it is to deliver mega projects, and mega projects are like basically things over a billion. So if everything's a billion and everything that's over a billion is inefficient, then you know you don't have to be a genius to put the math together and say all of our infrastructure projects are towards inefficiency so i think your argument around like buying power and stuff is probably true but i just wonder whether uh it's like um not to use an australian saying like pissing in the ocean because you probably do get some leverage from buying um and we you know we saw attempts at that like on or not like successful attempts at that like on crossrail with the escalators package was procured uh, centrally yeah the, the contractors but but whenever you do it, it's like it adds more complexity to the whole process of the design and the contracting model. And then that just adds more inefficiency on top of it. So I think that there is probably an aspect of like buying power, but I, I think it's on the margin compared to what's really driving like the, the efficiency of the project. So I, I think there's a strong argument from the perspective of, from the proven track record of the, Poor performance of mega projects in terms of time and budget delivery. There's also a really strong argument, uh, in my view, from the like the market forces, right? Like, let's say you know if if, if every project's over a billion, and and especially with government clients, every project has to every contract that's bidding has to prove that they have the financial capacity to deliver that project. There's normally some you know, like ratios of liquidity to fund the, the project and that rules out a lot of these uh sort of mid-size contractors and so the pool of people bidding for the jobs is naturally smaller and so traditional economics would say you're probably getting less value for money yeah if we think about those sort of specialists 
So if you, we really did split contracts up into individual contracts that all are directly with the client, your risk is pretty high because I guess it's like investing in a fund. You can invest in a fund that has 100 different shares. If one of them tanks, you, you, the other 99 prop it up. If you go to these specialists, if that package of work goes, that could really kill off a, a, a contractor if you haven't got the broader sort of scope of works to sort of give you that security. So do you think that risk you is mean actually like, quite... You mean if, you mean if like... Uh... You know, if like a smaller contractor takes on like a a, a big large contract uh, and and it has the ability to to knock them over. Yeah, exactly. So if as no, you're putting up a, a steel frame, and you're a contractor that's just erecting a steel frame, so manufacturing materials and erecting this the the, the structure itself. If the price of steel goes crazy, your entire contract, if you're on say a fixed cost, like you're done. Whereas if that steel frame was part like 1 million of a 100 million pound piece of scope, you could soak up the loss on that and you'd be aiming obviously to make elsewhere. So I guess you're a little more um, vulnerable to um, peaks and troughs of the cost of materials or whatever that aspect is. Yeah, that argument is precisely why most of those large infrastructure contracts have the like financial capacity the contractors have to pass to, to bid. But, you know, I wonder, I don't know if that's, that example's a particularly sensitive example. So I wonder whether the contractor should be the one taking the risk on the, on the, on that element, like the inflation of the materials. But I think the argument, like from the ones, from the articles we looked at, I don't think the argument is to break up a billion dollar contract into 20, like just break a billion into three dollar contract. These sort of mid-tier contractors could could deliver feasibly a, a low hundreds of million, or at least if you do that, you open it up to a whole yeah a yeah, whole new range of the pool is uh, way bigger uh, if you're doing like two three hundred million pound contracts than a billion, um, and yeah, if you actually went all the way down to splitting it up in a way that a contractor would to let their works. You then have a nightmare for the client organization because you've got <laughs> shitloads of contracts to um, administer. So yeah, definitely the yeah. slightly that, bigger pool, slightly smaller contract size makes sense. Well, that touches on like the argument not to do it, which is the which is why I'm on the fence generally because smaller contracts pushes more responsibility to the actual project management of the of the project to the client. And that makes them need to be more expert in delivery and more collaborative. So you think about some of the clients that we've worked with, like in former roles, if you've got two, three times as many contracts that you're managing and you're trying to take like a combative approach as a client, like you're just going to get overwhelmed. and The project will just grind to a complete halt. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it does push clients to be more project managers in their own right. Yeah. Um, also pushes these what were potentially sort of tier two contractors to be more commercially and sort of program aware. So you can imagine the drafts of consultants coming in because you're suddenly administering a contract with a client organization and you're battling, yeah, the just things like CEs and program acceptance. When you've got that many moving parts, you're going to need some, um, yeah, some force behind that. Yeah, and 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 does it fundamentally change the the culture of those uh, mid tier contractors? 
once you take those bigger jobs then you you end up having to hire people from the bigger contractors or have done those jobs before and then does your culture just become more like the the bigger contractor culture yeah yeah it's it's really interesting and um I think there are some projects that lend themselves to it for sure. Like there's the example in Australia of the, the, the poster child for this is like the level crossing removal schemes where, I don't know, it's like, I think it's like, and, and let in, in a progressive way, a couple of different alliances where it's let in like a couple of packages at a time to oversimplify how they do it. And that allows um, this uh, set of teams to build up a skill set delivering a certain part of a project and then roll that team one after another onto these like kind of similar elements. And you know, that's a big scheme, but it's it's really just a collection of smaller things. I don't know that that model, you know, we talked about, we had dinner a while ago, Carlos, where we talked about this, where it was like, yeah, that model uh, seems attractive, but does it make sense when you're building a, a tunnel from Denmark to Germany. You, how do you break a tunnel up? How do you <laughs> yeah. break a tunnel up? Yeah. So there are there are contracts or there are types of projects where it's just really it's really not feasible. I think it. I, my gut feeling is like if it's if the if the it should be something for clients to maybe keep in mind and strive for, but the actual like logistics and and the reality of the project probably dictate whether or not it's feasible yeah 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 i think it's clients being just a little bit more conscious about uh letting a massive package with it which then has like serious size packages within because they it's also bad money value for money for them which is fee on top of fee so if you're going to let a billion pound contract and one of the subcontracts is 200 million there's a good strong case to say the 200 million pound contract within could be dealt with separately or independently um, for sure uh, just to give anyone in the uk a bit of context to a 20 billion pound level crossing removal program <laughs> not level crossings like in the uk we've got two barriers and a, a bit of black and white paint across a uh, train track these are serious like they build flyovers and stuff to replace what were level crossings right they're like quite large structures yeah so um yeah once you've got your your two lines of paint and your boom gates uh and you build a city around that at some point and you try to remove it it gets it's kind of difficult you have to do you either have to take the the road under or the rail over there's also there's a a range of different solutions but basically yeah each one's a each one's a bit of a job on its own yeah right so uh next up qflow so um qflow is a british startup they just raised, I think, $9 million uh, to fund expansion into the US and Australia. So I thought we'd have a bit of a chat around them. Now, in terms of the product itself, it's around, it's an it's a application that allows us to sort of uh, collect and track real-time material and waste data. So I feel like it's tackling a real problem. And I say that because there's lots of startups that try to create problems that aren't really problems to try and sell at all into a space. But this is actually digitizing material delivery ticket um, sort of collection process and actually tracking waste data. And then they've sort of got aspects of carbon. So how do we actually think about what we're doing in terms of waste products on site? And everything is in a system with dashboard and everything else that you would expect. So 
yeah, it feels like a real problem. Um, there doesn't seem to be much competition. So I, I couldn't find many other vendors that sort of do it. Some of them have workflows, which are just digitized forms, like a Microsoft, whatever they call it. Uh, there's no real product tackling this space. So do you think it's an emerging category? I guess it's my question to you, Jason, but at the same time, it's why isn't it already quite a substantial category given that it's an issue you're going to have on every site? Yeah, well, I, I love this, to be honest. Like, yeah, it's, it's tremendous for them and Jaden. As a team, I think they've probably pivoted around what the core product is a few times. Like it was very much about like the ESG thing very early. And if you look at like um, their positioning now, it's it's largely about like tracking materials and dockets. And I love it because uh, like you said, so many um, so many companies in the construction space are doing things in like design or there's lots of va valuable things to be done in terms of construction technology but the hard bit is like actually like when it's on site these guys are doing something that is like really right at the coalface on site and that's really hard <laughs> as we know that's really hard so i i yeah i think it's great there is there's actually like a, a bunch of competitors that i've come across and seen but whenever I see people trying to solve this problem of digital dockets and recording, you know, everyone's got the problem where all of their concrete delivery records are on scraps of paper stored in people's folders or under the front seat of the car. And recording that is, is, a, is a bit of a mess and, and reconciling it. And whenever I see solutions from people trying to solve this, they take like a two-sided solution to the problem. And, and what I mean by a two-sided solution is obviously you've got the person generating the docket and then you've got the person receiving the docket, like the contractor, you've got the supplier that's printing a docket out and you've got, the, you've got the person receiving it being the contractor at the gate. And I've seen so many people try and solve this by getting the supplier to generate digital dockets as opposed to physical ones, um, which seems sensible, like uh, solve the problem at its source. But like, it's just, it becomes really difficult and infeasible because like, who is your customer? Are you selling to the contractor who has the problem of collecting all the dockets? Or are you, are you trying to sell to the supplier who doesn't really have the problem? And if you are selling to the contractor, it's a real big lift to get a contractor to convince their supply chain to use an alternate docketing system just for one of their customers. Like, which concrete yeah. vendor is going to do 90% of their dockets in one thing and 10% and it's just, it's not, it's really solving it in that way is just, uh, it's, it's, it's a big lift. And so, yeah, what I think the, the Qflow solution is, is let them do the dockets however they're doing the dockets and we'll scan them and we'll turn that into like meaningful data. Data. Your, your question was, is this an emerging category? We talk to teams all the time about how, they can use uh, the data out of Apex being this plan, this like real view of what the plan is and use that to correlate or work against what their actuals are. We talk to teams about how they're tracking those actuals and like it's a real mixed bag at the moment and the capturing and tracking of actuals that includes like materials turning up, who turned up on site, work, big time emerging category it's a broad category. It's sensors on site, on machines, uh, tracking of people, capturing the records of the materials that turn up and leave the site, big time problem. Uh, and 
yeah love that there's a solution that's that's gaining traction and is being Um, supported touching on the sort of supplier or contractor side of having a system i did find a bunch of suppliers that have their own system and then they have these uh, digital tools to obviously capture this information but you then got the other problem of even if it was full digital the contractors then got these potentially tens or hundreds of different data sets coming from different vendors and you've got to try and tie them all together so the fact that they can just scan and it pulls this information into one spot obviously they've they've raised quite a serious sum of cash um so it signals that they are pretty successful in their space they said that the cash is to move into us and australia is the same problem in australia is there anyone in that space um if you think about your our particular projects over there or the general market yeah short short answer yes like like i said i I speak to teams all the time about tools uh and uh answers run the gambit from we don't know how we're going to do that we're thinking of a strategy we're building some tools internally to do this real problem um here i think very similar to so I think very applicable. US, I don't know. It's a, it's a, it's a whole different beast. Um, whole different beast, but it's hard it, to imagine it not being an issue. Like it's such a like core part of construction that it just, unless they're doing something completely different, which you just can't imagine is the case. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. They still it, live on get, planet Earth, and so all the all the same rules yeah, yeah, of yeah. human behavior and, uh, and and how things get built and everything still still apply. So uh, it yeah. probably is it probably is valid. Yeah, you you you'd bet that it's the same issue in almost every country. Sure. Cool. Right, that is all we have time for today. Um, as always, thank you very much for listening.